Welcome back to the podcast. Matt, it is time for the main event. I feel ready, Tom. I feel ready. Before we dive into the main event, I want to give you a little warning. Yeah. This this is a film discussion we'll be going through, and we will be talking about the ending of the film, and we will be spoiling any surprises along the way. So it is of your benefit to see the film first. But if you just like, you can also listen to us if you don't mind a couple items yep. being spoiled. Yeah. If it's your first uh, ride in this mm-hmm. pony, we, we dive pretty deep generally into the films, uh, as you'll tell by the running length of our discussion, which I'm going to predict <laughs> is going to go for a decent amount of time. So, yeah, here you're either going to hear a lot about the movie and the ending uh-huh. and be happy about it or just complain about it and nobody cares. That's right. So you've been warned. And the film we're talking about today is The Long Goodbye, a yes. film directed by Robert Altman from 1973, and it is based off of a Raymond Chandler novel and stars Elliot Gould as the detective we all know and love, Philip Marlowe. He's a detective who was played in other films in the past uh, by such actors as Humphrey Bogart, Robert Mitchum, Dick Powell, and Robert Montgomery. How about that as a list of... That is quite a lineup. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and then you put Elliot Gould up in that category, huh? He's right there, neck and neck with the Giants, isn't he? Yeah. The novels themselves come from the 40s and 50s, and this one was written in 1953. But the movie itself is a bit of an update on that. It takes place in 1970s Los Angeles. Uh, Marlowe, the, the character, drives his friend Terry Lennox to Mexico in the middle of the night. It all seems a little suspicious, uh, as he's a little bit cut up, but he says everything's okay, he just had a fight with his wife, and mm. he has to go to Tijuana. Does sound a little suspicious, doesn't it? With friends like these, who needs enemies, Tom? Yeah, for sure. And, of course, after that happens, the police come knocking on Marlowe's door the next morning to escort him to the slammer. As they suspect Lennox of murdering his wife. Dun-dun-dun. Mm. Marlowe is quickly released when the cops find out that Lennox is indeed dead, and that what? sends Marlowe's head a spinning. Yeah, a lot of unexplained deaths to account for. Yeah, he then gets uh, a seemingly unrelated call from Eileen Wade to track down her husband, Roger, and Roger, played by Sterling Hayden, is this Ernest Hemingway type. Uh, he's even straight down to the beard, he really portrays it well. Eventually, Marlowe connects the dots between Lennox and the Wades somehow, and also ties them in with a mobster named Marty Augustine. Marty. Marty. Yeah. I mean, this uh, movie has all sorts of different characters in it. It has mobsters, the Wades' tenuous relationship, the crazy Dr. Verringer, and uh, (laughs) eventually Marlowe is led back to Mexico to find that Terry Lennox is actually living the good life down there. Son of a bitch. Yeah, and that is our description of the movie. That's a good synopsis, and really there's a lot more that goes on even in between there. I mean, there... Of course. There's a lot of... It's a dense film. There's there's a lot that goes on, so... We can only do so much. Yeah, and, and that was a good description, Tomas. Thank you. Yeah. Let's start by talking about the base for the movie, and that is a Raymond Chandler book. It's yeah. not a book that I've read, but I've seen many movies based on Raymond Chandler, and all of them are in the the 40s and 50s. Think mm-hmm. of The Big Sleep. Yeah. The Lady in the Lake. Yeah. Um, and right. then there's Murder My Sweet, which is, I'm probably giving it away right now, but is my favorite of all the, the Chandler novels nice. that have been turned into film. And it's kind of interesting that they would give this one a reboot. Uh, as many of those, you think of the fast-talking Marlowe, you think of... Uh, or, yeah, yeah the, the slick-talking Marlowe, the, the hard-boiled detective. The staccato delivery, yeah. Oh, yeah, completely, completely. And uh, this one's a little bit different. It's it's not shot in black and white. Uh, many of those films were considered film noir because they definitely had this, this sharp contrast. The blacks are black, the whites are white. You know, you yep. have, like, these jail bar uh, rows hanging over the villain's face. You have... Uh, the smoke coming out, the detective yeah. smokes a lot, and these billows of smoke coming out around, giving the, the film this certain look and style to it. Nice and heavy, bleak and oppressive, I guess would be some adjectives I would apply to typical, uh, most of which don't apply here to our last goodbye. Right, right. You you see that they pulled in some of these things, right? The Marlowe character, we'll, we'll dive into him as well, right. because he's he goes hand in hand with Chandler. Absolutely. But Marlowe himself, he, he wears this suit that looks like an older suit. He doesn't necessarily wear the hat. He's got his 
curly afro. <laughs> yeah, he's got the the Jufro, as they would say. As they would say, you yeah, know, that term that uh, uh, that our buddy from Forty uh, Year Old Virgin gave us. Uh, and um, yeah, he drives this old car, a car that comes from the forties. Uh, yeah. It's very era appropriate. Right. And like the other Marlowes, he acts cool, but it's more of a seventies hipster cool. It is. It's uh, a more eclectic cool than than uh, your your tough guy cool, I guess. I would say, you know. Right. Right. And, and really, the the change in era and. You know, even the casting of Gould, I mean, that has, you know, Altman's filthy fingerprints all over it, basically. I think that he <laughs> wanted to make it his own and just try to leave as many of the vestiges of the noir behind, basically, to... But we can get into that more later, but we I didn't dive into was, it now. Yeah. I think some of it was successful, and some of it really didn't work, um... It wasn't nearly as, as heavy as I thought it should have been, and... There's moments of almost absurdity, I guess you could say, between, especially with the the Wade character. I mean, mm-hmm. just I don't know why they didn't call him Ernest, honestly, to begin with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he he was uh, yeah Sterling Hayden's character was a uh, big, tall, bulking man, uh, heavy drinker. He had this big white beard. He looked very much like Ernest Hemingway, and I think that's much what they were going for. And he yeah. played a novelist in the film who was uh, coming off of a bender, essentially. He was in a, a clinic with Dr. Verringer trying to wash himself up after a quote-unquote bad incident that, that happened previous. And may have something to do with our story, huh? For um, sure it had something to do with the story, yeah. And I, I imagine as... Um, I found that distracting today and I mean I'm not a huge Ernest Hemingway reader and I mean Ernest Ernest Hemingway really isn't in my conscious and I don't think really is in the collective conscious of you know your average person going down the street today but I think in 1973 was that not distracting to the film to have this pastiche of of Hemingwayisms in this one character yeah he he did go I mean I enjoyed it but I agree it was it was a little bit over the top. It was um, almost like in Barton Fink with the the Faulkner character. But I think even nice. in Barton Fink, because it was the 40s period, yeah. the Faulkner character actually had a place. But this was the 70s. And right. this whole, like you said, this Ernest Hemingway thing, and the way the guy dressed, too. He looked like he was getting ready to board the pirate <laughs> ship. <laughs> and yeah. Barton Fink has a lot of absurdist things that go on. And, and you yeah. would think... Uh, even a 70s reinterpretation of noir shouldn't necessarily have, you know, a lot of just completely off-the-wall stuff, like like to that level, absurdity, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. that kind of bummed me out a little bit. But, I mean, and, and Elliot Gould is not who I would pick, and it's probably not who you would pick, <laughs> even if you were trying to redefine noir. Yeah. Um, but that said, and, and my impression of Elliot Gould work before I had seen Law Goodbye. You know, I could not have wanted to see Elliot Gould again in my life. I mean, I didn't have a particularly bad impression, nor a particularly good one, but I thought he did pretty good with the material he was given, in fact. I I think he actually was pretty decent. This movie made me want to see more Altman-Gould work, because they've done a lot together. Oh, really? Was this their first collaboration? Uh oh, jeez, you're really testing me now. I don't think it was their first. Okay, um, that's why after... he, I know he kind of fought for him to be in in the film, and that was he did. Yeah, he one did. Of the criteria. Actually, actually, the uh, yeah, the um, producers originally, or one of the producers at least, wanted, or maybe it was Peter Bogdanovich, because Bogdanovich was uh, at first slated to direct, but he pulled out because he had to do something else. But uh, he originally wanted Robert Mitchum. Yeah. And yeah. See, so, you know, talk... I mean, obviously, Robert Mitchum wouldn't work for what. Altman had in mind for right. how he wanted to present the story, but that's certainly who I would do, but I would do it more straight, obviously. So Right. And you know. at this point in his career, Elliot Gould was going through a lot of troubles. I think he had a lot of uh, problems dealing with the ups and downs of Hollywood, and he was pretty much out of work. Hmm. He had some psychological issues at the time, or, or something like that, I no read. Kidding. But um, he definitely jumped at the chance to get it, and as soon as he talked to Robert Altman, and Robert Altman wanted Gould, and he said, this is your character. He said that, you know, he sort of had goosebumps. It's a, it's a, The conversation was something he remembered years and years later. That's unbelievable. 
I mean, I'll give him credit for being an artist with a vision. If if you read that script and Elliot Gould pops into your head, then, I mean, good for you for making sure that comes to fruition, I mean, as an artist. Mm-hmm. But, oh, I, I enjoyed it. It's it's different, though, because you think of Marlowe as being a specific way. You think of the tough guy. You think of the Robert Mitchum, even Dick Powell, although his movie is the one I enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. It's, he's even a little bit, I don't want to say wimpier than you would like to see from Marlowe, but you almost think of like the Bogart, the Mitchum. Right. That's who you, you really want to see. Robert Montgomery, I was laughing when I saw him as Marlowe, but at least you don't have to see his face. <laughs> yeah, Mitchum would be my ideal uh, of Marlowe, yeah. just uh, in terms yeah. of the big tough guy. You know, He can deliver the patter pretty well, and you're going to buy it. Um, yeah. You know, Gould has his moments, and they didn't completely excise all of the, you know, uh, witty parte coming from, uh, you know, the hard-boiled detective. But yeah. a lot of it was neutered to some degree. But what he did deliver, oh, I thought, was, was pretty good. Yeah, and I mean, you look at him, neutered is a very funny term you use, because I just think of him in the intro of the movie. This is probably something that killed you, is yeah. oh. trying to please his damn cat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he he's looking around for curry brand cat food. And I love when he has that conversation with the uh, uh shelf the guy. stocker guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one o'clock in the morning. He's asking, Do you have curry brand cat food? The guy says it's all the same. He says, So you don't have a cat? He's like, What do I need a cat for? I got a girl <laughs> <laughs> And Marlo's got nothing to say about that. Yeah. And just throughout throughout the whole movie you don't even get the feeling that there is any sort of romantic entanglement between him or any other female in the movie and really the only other one would be Eileen Wade yeah who's the one who has the older husband the one who's troubled the alcoholic she's constantly crying around him because things aren't going right and he's an alcoholic and she constantly wants Marlo there to, to comfort her, but it yeah. never seems like it's in a, a sexual way. It never seems like it's going to lead to anything. He's just sort of there protecting her. Yeah, he is kind of the guardian angel, sort of. The goofy guardian angel, I guess, in, in that situation. And wanting what's best for her uh, and not maybe even sure why he's doing it because he knows the dames are trouble. But uh, he can't seem to help himself with respect sure. to Eileen. I will say the uh, the cat food, I was taking notes as I was watching it, and I was taking a note that early on, I'm like, I'm not sure what the cat food gag is going to be, what the payoff is, and the answer is there is no payoff. It's like the setup for the entire movie that Marlo, and, and this can be constituted as being a successful in that, you know, the setup is Marlowe doesn't get his satisfaction and, no. you know, he, there has just such a long wind up to get to that, that I felt a bit cheated, but I will say Altman, you know, kudos to you, sir. Cause you know, <laughs> your setup was in fact a setup for the whole movie and not really just that one minute gag that I was looking for. So yeah. I was looking for the immediate satisfaction, but really it was, it was a long play and he got me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he sets up the characters being, you know, he doesn't have a dog. He's not a tough guy. He's a little pussycat, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Curry Brand, C-O-U-R. Oh, oh we're all in Curry Why Brand. Why don't you get this, mister? All this shit is the same anyway. Oh, yeah? You don't happen to have a cat by any chance, What do I need a cat for? I got a girl. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's got a girl and I got a cat. And, um... Sorry to interrupt your flow. So we were talking about, yeah, Gould uh, with the the femme fatale, but not the femme fatale. And, uh, yeah, she's not really a femme fatale because uh, she never leads him in the wrong direction sexually, right? She yep. doesn't yeah. take him over. She doesn't have the, the honey of the ankle bracelet like you would see in Double Indemnity, for example, right? Yep. It, it never seems to make it to that point and again I guess we'll talk about that as we get into the film noir aspects you could say that she she acted you know relatively innocently and and justly aside from the fact as I know you talked about we talked about before you know she did you know deceive and intentionally withhold things but mm-hmm. um, so on one information hand, her, more yeah, or less her, and her actions were noble and, and her intentions were noble but uh Still not exactly on the up and up, if that makes right. any sense. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the interesting thing about her, I watched the movie twice, 
And it's very hard to tell what her true goals are in this film, right? Yeah. I mean, you think of, oh, let's go back to Double Indemnity. What are the true goals of Barbara Stanwyck's character? Her goals are to, it seems, get money, right? Yeah. Kill her husband, get the money, and, you know, get Walter Neff out of the picture. I mean, there's that spot at the end where she says, I love you, right, as he kills her, or whatever. Yeah. She's just yeah. trying to stay alive, right? Correct. She's... Manipulations, yeah. Exactly. It's very difficult to tell in the entire film what the goals of Eileen Wade are. Indeed. Yeah, as a viewer, I mean, you're pretty much desperately want her to leave and get rid of the bad situation, the dude, Hemingway, as I'm just going to call him. Um, I mean, it's just a bad situation all around. He's irritating to even you as a viewer with his drunken brashness and annoyances. How could she possibly put up with that all the time? Right. And the but, natural feeling is to want her to gravitate towards Marlowe. Yeah. Right? He's the main character. He's the tall, leading man. He's the detective. He's the one trying to piece the things together. And um, Even closer in age than, than you know, the seemingly uh, Wade relationship would be. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And in the end, and this isn't what Marlowe guesses until the end, Marlowe's constantly guessing the film. That's the other thing about the Marlowe characters of the past. You always see them... Um, they have a good grasp of the case. Even if they don't know what the the end is yet, yeah. they know what the next step is, and they're going in the right direction, and they're like a step ahead of the audience. Sure, exactly, yeah. But with this character, he seems to be in a world that he doesn't really understand, a world that confuses him, it's complicated, more complicated than he's expecting. And it's funny, in the, the very last scene... Uh, right before, and this is the spoiler here, right before he actually does shoot Terry Lennox, his his good friend, yep. the words that Terry Lennox says right before he gets gunned down is, you were always a loser, you were a born loser. And that's when Marlowe shoots him. Yeah. And I think that almost rings true. I mean, that that's sort of like the bookend of not being able to feed his cat. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, right. Is that this isn't your Marlowe who comes in, it's a complicated case. Nobody even knows what happens at the end of the movie. They just know that the bad guy's dead or in jail, but Marlowe did something right. Yeah, I don't think anybody, any other characters would call Marlowe a loser in the other movies and, and get away with it or even really have that come up as a topic of conversation. But it does fit here, and it is suitable to you know how it's played off and the scenario that he finds himself in. Right. Nobody cares but me. Well, that's you, Marlowe. You'll never learn. You're a born loser. Yeah, I even lost my cat. Yeah, it's all it's all part of that that attempt at the '70s reflecting back. Uh, I mean, there's a number of films that that fit into what some people call neo noir. Um, mm-hmm. You can go back to to Chinatown. You can go back to this film, uh, Night Moves. And there's a number of these films that reflect back on the hard-boiled gangster films of the 40s and 50s with that little tweak where instead of the character being in control, the world is actually, you know, in much greater chaos than he can handle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know I read, uh, in doing my research and homework, a little bit of, a couple of reviews, and one gentleman said, you know, that uh, Marlowe is basically living in his own bubble inside of his head, and he's watching all these kind of occasionally surreal things happen around him that occasionally you know intrude in the bubble and literally smack him in the face when he gets taken in by the police and next thing you know he's getting abused by the cops and uh our friend marty uh you know marlo bumbles his way into a situation where uh, marty does some pretty atrocious things to uh his girlfriend who he loves and that's a great scene. That he is, says, that I is love my... her. I don't even yeah. like you. Yeah, yeah, that's a good scene. And uh, that was Altman's dirty, filthy fingers that kind of injected that in there. And I guess I will give him credit because at the very least it was memorable and enjoyable. Um, yeah. And that scene that was actually rewritten by Mark Rydell, the guy who played Marty Augustine. Oh, really? I had someone I love and you I don't even like. You have an assignment, cheapy. Find my money. Yeah, the thing about Robert Altman was that he was very much into improvisation and letting actors and cinematographers, as we'll get into in a second, Mm -hmm. improvise and lend their talents to the film, even if it meant rewriting and and guiding him in a different direction. He really loved that. 
and that's why you'll see in all these movies, especially later in life, uh, in some of his movies in the 90s and the 2000s, yeah. a lot of big-name actors just come out and they'll play even small roles in his film. But just to work with Robert Altman was a pleasure for them. Well, I, I do like the idea of giving actors you know, that freedom. And it just if you are truly a professional actor and you take your craft seriously, as I think you know a lot of them do, that... They probably do have a lot of things to say and a lot of influence that, you know, I'm sure that infuriates a lot of your screenwriters and everything, but uh, I'm not necessarily against that idea, and I think that probably could be very fruitful. Yeah, yeah, and if you like this movie, it was uh, definitely an example of that. Uh, Yeah, well... (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, here we go, the true feelings are good. (laughs) That was was one good scene, and good on Mark Rydell for uh, injecting some life into (laughs) Marty Augustine and... You know, that poor woman with her face. That was certainly yeah. uh, memorable. Yeah. 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 The Coke bottle for a nose. Ugh. Yeah. Brutal. And um, the camera work, the cinematography. Vilmos Zygmunt. Is this a name that you recognize, Matt? Because it's a name that every time I see, I get a little bit excited about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I- I'm not super read up on all of his work. I know he kind of emigrated from somewhere in Eastern Europe and started making some pretty uh, amazing movies with some pretty amazing directors uh, here in the States. I know he worked with Spielberg, I think, and uh, De Palma. Yeah, so he's from Hungary originally, right. along with Laszlo Kovács. Um, he did work with Spielberg, Close Encounters, and that was a, a movie very different from this one. Yeah. Good I know range. he talks yeah. about doing those two movies. So this movie, uh, one thing he did in this movie, there's a lot of natural lighting. They're outdoors a lot. They're not on a stage. Yeah. So you have to be able to compensate for that lighting, and especially in color. You need that color, that, that right saturation point. And he would do this technique, which really wasn't done a whole lot at the time. He was kind of one of the inventors of it, mm-hmm. he would flash the film. So he would suggest, uh, suggest subject the film to a low-intensity exposure. And um, this would cause like an increase in some of the minimum density of the color layers uh, and some of the negatives. So he would flash not only the negatives, but the prints, and it would sort of play around with the, the color saturation. Oof. Yeah, I mean, the days before digital, that certainly is adventurous. I mean, you're not really certain at the time what your outcome's going to be. I mean, right. you get your rushes, and what is that, the next day you get to see, or later that day, the outcome, possibly? And Right, right. Know, that's, I mean, you're a true pioneer when you're doing that sort of stuff, and playing with other people's money there. <laughs> right. So it doesn't have a high contrast, per se. If you watch this movie, that's one of the things that kind of bugged me about it is, you know, you watch a hard-boiled detective film, you think about the 40s, you think of this high contrast. This is a very low contrast film, yeah. right? The shadowy areas are a little bit lighter because he's trying to get more detail out of those areas with that flashing. Hmm. So the blacks don't come out as black, the whites don't come out as white. But on the other hand, you get some of these great shots. Like, you, you probably remember this one where the Wades are inside arguing and Marlowe's out at the, the beach. Yeah. And the camera's outside, and it's looking through the window, the sliding glass window. Yep, yep. And in focus is Marlowe, but you also see Roger and Eileen arguing away, and you see Marlowe walking it back and forth between them, just sort of wandering around aimlessly on the beach. Mm-hmm. And that sort of plays into what you said about the surrealist world that he's caught in. That's yeah. the, the perfect shot for that. While they're within that bubble, there's some real argument going on. There's like the real the real crime is happening, or the real... Yeah, the real truth is happening there and there that uh, Marlowe isn't subject to yet, and they have to figure out the hard way, basically, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there's some nice moments like that that I really liked. But overall, I think, and maybe I just have to see a better version of the movie. I saw it on DVD, but you got to think maybe if they clean it up a little better and Criterion gets a hold of it, you can really see a pretty, pretty film. Yeah, I, I mean, it obviously is fairly beloved, as I think we probably both found from our are searching, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of received somewhat poorly initially, it sounds like, and then, you know, kind of got some critical people that were pro or really into it, but for the most part, it wasn't all that well received, but at this point, in, right. in, in, in uh, looking back, there certainly are quite a few fans, and uh, it's, you know, mm-hmm. fairly popular and well received today. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you can see it probably getting some 
some action. It did have the usual uh, Altman ticks in terms of the zooming, and how, I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, but. yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, he... So in this movie, uh, the movie they did before this is a movie called Images. Yeah. So he worked with Altman on McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Images. Oh, is this Vilmos we're talking? Vilmos, yeah. Okay. Uh, some of the other movies, I'll just throw them in there now while I got the chance here. Obsession, Blowout, and Black Dahlia, okay. and who directed those movies? Oh, Mr. De Palma, yeah. Mr. De Palma. And then some Michael Cimino films, Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate. I mean, those are some pretty big... I mean, we think of cinematography, you think of those films. Sure, yeah. So yeah. he had some, some pretty big projects, along with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Close Encounters. Right. But yeah, going back to the, the pan and zoom, they used it in a specific scene in images in order to show the mental state of one of the women. She's schizophrenic. So they used a lot of uh, panning, zooming, the camera's constantly moving during the scene to right. to pull that out of her and, and give the audience that perception. And Altman had the idea, let's do that for an entire film. Hence you have The Long Goodbye, which is pretty much anytime there's characters with dialogue, the camera's moving around, almost like it's looking for some clue, yeah. looking for something else, getting a different perspective. And uh, <clears throat> it was interesting for some of the actors to work on this too, like Sterling Hayden was very used to being at a place on his mark, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, he comes from the old Hollywood, he's one of the older yeah, actors right. in the film he'd look down on the ground and see marks and he'd say is this where i'm supposed to stand and they said no don't worry about it we just we just know if you're standing there we have a certain way that we All have right. to focus so he had a lot of freedom and i guess really enjoyed that on this film hmm. even though you didn't matt no no i mean it's not really a procedural to the point that uh marlo is uncovering clues he's turning over pillows and, and finding smoking weapons and stuff so I viewed most of Altman's... I mean, it's like he can't help himself. He he does it even if it's not necessary. And and <laughs> I, I know we talked before that I recently watched the uh, Secret Honor movie, uh, yes. a, a later Altman flick, over, uh, mm -hmm. which is based on the one-man play about Richard Nixon, kind of a fictionalized story of Nixon after the White House. And... Uh, it's it's hard to gussy up a, a one-man play, um, you know, kind of a, a monologue. Uh, and he decided to gussy it up with, you know, constant panning and zooming. And zooming in on cameras that are zoomed in. And, oh, come on, mm -hmm. man. It's, <laughs> it's distracting. I mean, yes, it's your uh, it's your signature and it's what you bring and you feel like mm -hmm. you're adding something. But I don't know. I didn't think that it... It loses it. a little bit of the, oh, he's doing it to find out what's going on with the characters. When he does it in every movie that he makes, it's, I mean, do all the characters have secrets that he's trying to explore with his probing camera that's moving in and out? Well, it goes back to the classical debate, too. I mean, Eisenstein versus Bizan, right? I mean, are you the type of person that wants to see these montages? You want to see a lot of pictures strung together and constant cuts every half a second? Yeah. Or do you want to see the long takes where you get to explore the whole area around you and you get this feeling of a complete world, or at least a more complete world, right? When you cut, you know, all you're looking at is that one square. But yeah. as soon as you start moving the camera, you expand your, your movie world. And I think that it, when you shoot like they did on these locations, I yeah. think it brought a lot. I mean, you think of the movie, uh, not the movie, you think about the camera while he was at his apartment, right? He's in his apartment. He walks out. You see all the women doing yoga across the way, right? Haba haba, yeah. But then you see how beautiful his apartment is and the view that he has and how kind of, I don't know, I guess eclectic the apartment is. You, you, you get like this full feeling of, of how he lives. Yeah. Uh, you somewhat already answered my argument. I was going to say that I, I want to see whatever the story dictates. I want that delivered. Uh, the best way possible. So I think you completely diffused my argument before I was even able to make it, and I curse you for that, Tom, because it awesome. sounds like you won. So <laughs> curses. Yeah, well, yeah. that makes up for me losing the first round of uh, Make Mine Madsen. <laughs> you went one, you went for two, not bad. Yeah, that one for two is not too bad. Now yeah. the other ultimate tick that I find even more annoying than the pan, because I, I don't mind the pan and the zoom. I, I in fact, you know, I, I'm a sucker for some some ticks of that sort, but the the use of the audio and the blending, <clears throat> which I know is something I praised probably back in the days of our uh, the drug movie. <laughs> what was the drug movie? I forget it already. The, the, Enter the Void. Enter the Void. Uh, here, 
especially with the horrible jazz. And I'm not a jazz fan to begin with, so this movie's pretty littered with jazz music. It's littered with one song. It's yeah. bookended by Hooray for Hollywood, but they had this one song that they created for the film, and they played it in like 10 or 15 different ways. Even the doorbell to the Waits' house was using this song called The Long Goodbye. That's horrible. It's like oh, a... Oh, you didn't like that. No. That was and, nifty. And the worst uh, example of this is obviously the Gosford Park movie, where there's conversations happening three rooms over and you know stuff you're watching stuff on screen that's disconnected from whatever is going on in the audio track it's so annoying it's like when i was playing super mario too loud in the living room my mom would yell at me that she couldn't talk on the phone it just is like an that's an ultimate soundtrack right there is listening to your mom talk while playing somebody's playing super mario world 3 at the same time I never want to punch your face more than when you're ripping on Gosford Park. Oh, that's, that's oh, the worst. I, oh, I love that movie. That is such a great movie. And for the reasons that you're dissing it are some of the reasons I just love it. Yeah. And it's another Robert Altman film, like you mentioned, and it has, it, you know, it just expands upon what we've seen here in The Long Goodbye and does so in a great way. Oh, I could go on and on about it, but huh. this is The Long Goodbye we're talking about yeah. here, not Gosford Park. Yeah. All right. So that that kind of bummed me out as well, but uh, mm. I know that's one of his his things he likes to do, and I didn't find it to be. It's certainly not noir, um, and I don't think it it passes for neo noir either. I just think it's Altman putting his mushroom head on onto uh, a noir <laughs> story, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you yeah, now, sorry. I'm always interested in politics and how they're not necessarily explained in film, but they're. Uh, given these political undertones in film. And Robert Altman is very left-wing, mm-hmm. uh, if you know him from his personal life. Um, did you pick up any tones of any overt liberalism or anything that you would expect from that time? I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, and I viewed my... Yes, I did get some sense of that, but I, I, at the same time, I attributed it more to the setting and the location in terms of updating it into the 70s. And maybe that was the reason for making that decision. I mean, you think of the 50s, you think of cold, hard, communist-hating conservatism. You think of updating a movie and pushing it into the 70s in L.A., you're getting a very different tone. Um, not to mention the you know naked ladies and the dope smoking and all that sort of fun stuff. So Hubba hubba. There was some attempts to normalize some, you know, social activities that, uh, you know, I think Mr. Altman himself was a fan of, and to liberalize such things. Uh, and, and I thought that was uh, true to, if we're going to accept the premise that he's going to bump it into the 70s uh, L.A. scene, uh, I was willing to accept, you know, such a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of look at the differences in the film and some of the themes of the in the film versus what you would see in any of the other Raymond Chandler films. Like for example, Terry Lennox is his friend. It's Marlowe's friend. Yeah. Essentially coming to him and asking for help. And in the end, that's the person who betrays him the most. And I looked up the date on when this movie is released. And then I know you're going to love this. Nice. I looked up the dates of Watergate. Nice. And I kept thinking about Terry Lennox as being this almost Nixon like character. <laughs> I looked at him as being this guy who just comes in that you trust because of the position that he has as, you know, in this case, Terry Lennox is a good friend of Marlowe's. Mm -hmm. Nixon is our president. And I kept getting this feeling that, you know, him blowing away Lennox at the end was almost like Altman wanting to blow away Nixon for the lies he told for Watergate. And it's interesting. I think the dates line up where the information would have been out because I think in 1972 they already had the uh, Woodward and Bernstein writing what they heard from Deep Throat. Hmm. Good investigation. I think this is a world uh, exclusive that we just broke here on Jackass Critics. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. No, that sounds... uh, I, I think that does line up and it does make some degree of sense and Especially when we look upon, you know, uh, Altman's expose on on uh, Nixon afterwards in that Secret Honor film, so he had something for Nixon, right? He certainly had it out for Nixon. He certainly was. I think you're correct in saying he despised Nixon and probably, you know, genuinely disliked him. But I think he was also curious, you know, and wanted to dig into that and to know. Mm-hmm. 
and give him credit, maybe he was more interested in what motivated Nixon to be the person that he was. You know, most people, you, you don't like somebody, you don't like them, you don't want to learn anything about them. You know, if you there's an mm-hmm. opinion that you don't agree with, you just want to push away from it. But right. at the very least, I think he was willing to explore that, even if his answer seemed to be that Nixon was crazy, uh, from what I could tell. Right, but, right, right, right. Now, here's another thing, yeah. right? Uh, Themes-wise, what did you think of his representation, or representation of the women next door practicing yoga? What what is going on there, Tom? I mean, is it just a uh, well? Let me lay it out for yeah. you, right? So there's there's four women who are next door to Marlo. I mean, he, he just sort of walks across this crossway, asks them if he has their cat, asks them to watch the cat or whatever. They're generally naked, or N- they're generally naked, flexing. doped up, and practicing yoga. And there's yeah. like five of them, <laughs> and they seem so to be very game... playful and and uh, fun and. Yeah. yeah, they're they're out to have a you know almost doll like in terms of just their interactions, you know, or just you know Barbie like with with Marlo. But Marlo never really makes any advances towards them. Seems and completely when... disinterested. I mean, it's like he's talking to Aunt B, and uh, I mean, just in terms of the casualness and the lack of of registering what's happening. Yeah. yeah, and I almost looked at this, and there's a there's one scene in the movie where he has the most contact with them. Uh, not the scene where he's going to get brownies for them, two kinds, fudge and regular. <laughs> right. You know, for whatever they're going to do with those brownies, right? Who yes, knows? Yes, exactly. And Medicinal. they're even, sp- yeah, they're just spaced out in that scene. But the scene towards the end where he asks him about the cat, yeah. and they're just not even there at all. They don't right. even answer him. They're just into their yoga and probably tripping on acid or something right. like that in another world. And he's just, he sort of has this forget them look on his face. Yeah. You know, who cares if they're all topless and, you know, looking hot and whatever. Yeah. He just doesn't want anything to do with them. And I, I was very interested in why they were there, what Altman wanted to do with them there. I mean, it almost seemed like he had this representation of these beautiful women as being hollow. And what did that mean, you know, socially? Yeah. Nothing. Hi, girls. Uh, do you see my cat? Our body. Well, the other day he ran away, and uh, I'm leaving town for a couple of days, so uh, I'd appreciate it if he shows up, if you could uh, look after him or give him a bowl of milk. Or, uh, they're not even there. It's okay with me. They have this opinion of some of the women in California and L.A. in general. Yeah. As he trying to portray them as being hollow. Yeah. And well, I, th- I think two things are probably going on. I think you're correct that he was probably just viewing that as maybe a, a realistic representation of your... 70s Hollywood, uh, you know, hanger on or chick at the time. But at the same time, I think if he went in with the premise for this project that he was going to take a 50s noir film and, and mix it up and kind of introduce situations um, to the character that normally wouldn't happen, you know, to your typical Robert Mitchum, you know, Marlowe. Yeah. Um, you know, Robert Mitchum Marlowe isn't going to be coming across. T- dames of this sort and if he did i mean how would robert mitchum handle that i mean he's just not even programmed to possibly do that it's like a a computer reading a bad instruction and just shutting down it's just so outside the realm of possibility that it's not even something you could possibly imagine robert mitchum handling so i think he was doing it mostly you know he goes into his screenwriter and says Let's do some messed up crap, you know, next door to Marlowe for just to play the yin to his yang. And <laughs> his reaction is there is no reaction. You know, it's the same thing with the cat food thing. It's the setup is the setup, you know, and there is yeah. no payoff. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. It, it also goes back to your comment about the uh, the surrealist world that he lives in, right? I yeah. mean, what's more surreal than, than that situation? <laughs> you're walking in a cloud and all of a sudden you're around naked ladies doing yoga and you just... Go about yeah. your business as is, yeah. And in the cloud is right, because you look at the apartment he was in, it, it almost seemed like in some of the shots they framed it in such a way where it looked like he was walking well above the other buildings. Yeah. That was... like he was sort of on the edge of the world. He was up in the clouds with these fairies or angels who were, again, a little bit hollow. Right. Pixies, you want to call them. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, good call. What you, want to, what you want to call them in mythology, but yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, he's he's in his own little world. And his his apartment was a a really cool location, I will say. That was that was pretty neat. That was a nice. Yeah, house. I want to go to L.A. and find that apartment. So he was living there now. Yeah, Holy cow. Yeah, it's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so back to the topic of film noir. Yeah. 
let's start asking some questions. Is this film noir, Matt? Is this neo-noir? Because there's a discussion yeah. about whether there's such a thing as neo-noir. There's a discussion about whether it's a style or a genre. Yeah. What's your take on it? I mean, I certainly went in expecting it to be noir. I mean, when we pitched this uh, at the end of our last podcast, you know, I was like, oh, I'm really, you know, interested. I admitted my distaste for Altman, but I was curious his take on a noir film. And, and I don't think it's a noir film. I think he intentionally uh, took noir material and tried to basically run as far away as possible, keeping some of the criteria um, alive in terms of the uh, patter and things like that from our hard-boiled detective and some of the double-crossing that's going on and the questionable female character with questionable motivations. But... Um, I don't think it qualifies as being a true noir film, and I hope you say yes and you give me reasons why. No, I was going to agree with you. I was going to give you different reasons, though. All right. So when you talk about film noir, I say hard-boiled detective film is a genre. Yep. Film noir is a style. Right. And I even look at some of the films that people refer to as film noir, and I think they're either weak noir or they're not noir at all. They're just hard-boiled detective films, Mm -hmm. so they don't really qualify. I mean, I think of... Uh, usually like a distinct style that they're shooting with that that high contrast look but along with that right the billowing smoke the shadows that are thrown the uncertainty within the story is really big Uh, but the shooting style is usually what i look at for film noir also like you said you know the the lack of trust around you the the world that seems to be setting up this uh the scheme around you that unfolds in a way you don't expect and you sort of walk yourself into a trap yeah yeah it, it, it usually has these some these elements to it and sometimes it's a detective film but sometimes it's not necessarily a detective film you can see film noir in a western i believe yeah right so yeah it, our friend um paul schrader who directed a film or wrote a film that uh, I've heard the neo-noir label applied to in uh, Taxi Driver, which I'm not sure if I would classify that as a neo-noir film myself. Sure, sure. But apparently he wrote a book on uh, notes on film noir in 1972. Yes. Uh, Are you familiar with such a thing? I'm familiar. I think I'm even familiar with his stance on film noir, but go ahead. So I uh, copy and pasted. He has seven stylistic elements, as you mentioned, Um, you know, it's the style and the presentation more so than the content, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. So right. I don't know if I want to read all seven of these off here, but I think fairly certainly that Long Goodbye does not meet a lot of them. So uh, he's got the scenes are lit for night. Uh, that one certainly is not necessarily present here. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a love or romantic narration, which I don't think necessarily applies. It's missing. It's missing that. I think the lit for night, I would say it is. Uh, there's a lot of night scenes, at least, in the movie. But the lighting is sort of strange. It doesn't come off as the high contrast because of the flashing that yeah. Vilmos was using. Yeah, I, th- I think that's... When the day scenes happen, it is... I mean, I mean, all the parties happening and all the scenes, basically, or a lot of the scenes with the Wades, aside from when Mr. Wade decides to walk out into the water. But there's nothing particularly noir-y about that. He just walks into the water and goes away. Um, There's a big zoom on that, though. Thank thank you, Altman. So there's some other ones here. Uh, A complex chronological order is frequently used to reinforce the feeling of hopelessness. I mean, that's not really the case here. Not present. Yeah. Um, Let's see what some other ones. Oblique and vertical lines are preferred to horizontal, but I didn't really pay attention to these this such uh, this criteria in Long Goodbye. Again, you notice that more in black and white than you notice it in color. It's That's, a lot easier to yeah. overemphasize such things and really, you know, burn a brand into your brain. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, he did, he went there. <laughs> so I thought uh, it was kind of interesting, and and obviously I don't think that any one person can say these are the check boxes to make something noir. But uh, if we do follow Mr. Schrader's uh, criteria, I think uh, Long Goodbye fails. But I don't think that necessarily is, you know, would would cause Altman to lose any sleep. You and I saying that it wasn't a noir film, so. It- yeah, it's still a hard-boiled detective film, and I still think it's a it's a pretty good one at right. that. But I, I'm a I'm in the Schrader camp. I I believe that style does uh, dictate whether it's film noir or not. And in a lot of cases, I think black and white is necessary for it to be film noir. Yeah, uh, another uh, little bit of research. I read an interview with Leigh Brackett, who was the screenwriter. 
Yes. And uh, when asked for the impression of the book, uh, it was called A Novel Filled with Clichés. And of course. Basically, I think by clichés, uh, lay meant, uh, you know, hard-boiled noir goodness. Yeah. And that's basically what they pitched out and, you know, the process of distilling the book into the movie, you know. Yeah. One you thing know, I know about the are kind of what noir and your detective are about, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I know about the book is that in the end he doesn't kill Terry Lennox. That was something that the Lee Brackett actually added. Okay. Yeah, well, and it's I'm something that some Walt, benefits for that, yeah. Yeah, something that Altman said, if I'm going to make this movie, the ending stays. It was in his contract. Hmm. So, another question for you, Matt. Yeah. Did you notice any actors who were possibly making their debut? I mean, there's plenty of them in this movie, but I'm asking you about one in particular. Uh, refresh my memory, Thomas. Who should I have paid attention to? Well, um, he's a former governor, I guess you would say now, of California. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. And didn't we see him in his underwear, too? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, I believe he makes his film debut, or it's pretty close to that. He yeah. may have done his Hercules in New York movie before right. this. He has a non-speaking role in this film. And he has just a crazy, awesome stash going on. I mean, this is one tasty mustache he has hanging <laughs> from his face. You can only get away with that in the 70s. Yeah, I've got a couple screenshots of him in this movie. So he's one of Marty Augustine's thugs, but yeah. he's only in the second scene with Marty the Augustine. There's, there's two yeah. main scenes. And he's by far the biggest person in the room. I mean, this is like totally juiced up Arnold. Yeah, Again, ripped, man. Yeah, oh. Crazy mustache going on. And he does take off his pants. He has some yellow underwear on. <laughs> and he looks very awkward doing it. Because like, there's this, the scene where Marty Augustine tells everyone to take off their pants because he wants everyone to be naked in front of the mistress that he bashed with the Coke bottle. Because right. he has some crazy theory about why everybody should be naked in front of her. And it looks like Arnie kind of jumps the gun, and he's sort of looking around awkwardly, like he took yeah. his pants down a little too fast, and he's sort yeah. of he's taking pretty his, eager for it. Yeah, he's taking his time with the undies, and yeah. you know, he's like, okay, when's going to be the time when everybody tells us to stop? And there's one moment where his eyes look directly into the camera for about <laughs> half a second. Uh, awkward. Yeah, we'll have to put that on the website. Yeah, and, he's probably uh, looking around for a Latina maid that he wanted to impress with. Oh, obviously, obviously. Looking for the ugliest one in the audience. Yes, uh, yes, that that is a good uh, call. And I had, for some reason, uh, blanked uh, Arnie's unit uh, and yellow underwear from my mind until you mentioned it. And then it flashed in like a Grateful Dead flashback uh, popped in my brain in Technicolor. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, uh, it was pretty funny seeing Arnie there. It, It caught me by surprise for sure, but that was definitely him. Yeah, and he's about... Three men wide of Marty Augustine, too, because he is a pretty, pretty jacked up there. Holy cow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's huge. He's huge. We'll post that picture on our website. Um, and then there's the guy who does the impressions. He does an impression of Barbara Stanwyck that's directly out of Double Indemnity, which is something we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Right. He does Jimmy Stewart, Cary Brandt, and uh, Walter Brennan. Sorry, Cary Grant. I think I said Cary Brent. I was reading <laughs> one step ahead there. Yeah. And again, that was sort of a, a throwback to the old Hollywood. It was a throwback to the old 40s noir that, or hard-boiled detective films that Altman was trying to, to pull off here. Yeah. I've been working on Barbara Stanwyck. I'll show you. All right. I don't understand. I don't understand it at all. I've never understood it, Walter. I just don't understand why I don't understand it all. I don't understand. You're going to be all right. Nina Van Pallant, who played Eileen Wade. Mm, yeah. Before she did this, she was the mistress of Clifford Irving. Do you know who Clifford Irving is? Oh, yes, the book faker. Yeah, you got it. The guy who wrote yeah. the fake biography of Howard Hughes. I thought that was kind of interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> and our good boy, we, we already said reference Kill Bill once in this podcast. Yeah. Let's do yeah. it one more time. David yeah. Carradine. He's the guy who talks to Marlowe about smoking joints in the... Uh, the joint, so to speak. Really? He's the crazy guy sitting there. Yeah, it didn't even sound like him when you think about what Bill sounds like in Kill yeah. Bill. But that is the Bill of Kill Bill. No kidding, huh? Yeah. Uncredited. I did not know that. Yeah. Small role. Yeah, pretty cool. And as we said before, the song Long Goodbye, created by 
John Williams, and I think there's someone else who may have had a credit on that. But oh, this is yeah. played multiple times in the film. There's the music in the grocery store. Marlowe sings it to himself. The doorbell at the Wades. The um, the Mexican bandolero brand that walks by during the funeral is playing this song, and it's on the oh. radio in so many different ways. The guy at the bar plays it on the piano. I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> the guy at the bar. I made a note that if you ever tried to hold a conversation with me while you were playing the piano, I'm just going to walk out on you. That's my, <laughs> my new rule. I didn't realize I needed that rule, but apparently people try to hold conversations while they're playing the piano, and I'm going to draw the line there, Tom. Our friendship does not extend that far. Luckily, I don't play the piano, so. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky for us. I did note that the the fish and or the uh, steaks were 85 cents, too, at the piano playing bar. So. Oh, wow. Good, good for Marlo. Hey, I'm always yeah. interested in the price in old movies like that. Yeah. It was see the price of gas. chips, 85 cents on the wall. So. Oh, baby. That sounds good right now. Yeah, that does sound good. You're right. <sighs> All right, Matt. Back to yes. our playbook questions here. Who do you party with? Who do I party with? I mean, Marty Augustine, I mean, he's like that crazy friend that when he when he goes crazy, he goes too crazy. But he, he seems like he's not that bad of a guy. And, you know, he's just really wild. You never know what he's going to do next, which is kind of bad when you're, you know, nearby. But And he has people that could kill you. So it's does it sound like I'm talking myself out of Marty Augustine? Yeah, you talked yourself into and then out of Marty Augustine pretty quickly. I mean, he he he, he he's, makes an impression as well. He's definitely one of the cooler guys in the movie. So I'm yeah. gonna stick with that. That's my final answer. I'm gonna party with the old man at the entrance of the uh, what's his name, Lennox Estate. The old man. The old guy who's doing the impressions. Oh, he's all doing right. all these great impressions. We'll probably be talking about movies for you That's know true. an hour and. Having yeah. a couple drinks, and he'll be, like, throwing his Bogart at me. And, oh, no, I can one-up you. Let me do this, you know. Yeah. Hey, I'll That's party with That's a good point. He, he won't stab you to death either. So, I mean, yeah, you got that I'm, going for you. Yeah, at this point in my life, I'm looking for safety. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. People I party with. Yeah. yeah. Okay, which Marlowe? Uh, Eileen, by oh, the way, ahead. not not too bad looking. I mean, certainly. Uh, the old material. guy? Milk material. The old guy. Oh, right. The old guy is milk. No, okay. Eileen, Mrs. Wade. Mrs. Wade. Oh, 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 oh. Mrs. Yeah, Wade, not unattractive. Yeah. So if Marty starts going crazy, I go party with Eileen. I thought you were saying the old guy who works the gate is MILF material. Well, maybe when he starts doing the right impression. Yeah, he had a Barbara Stanwyck that was <laughs> spot for. on. It was <laughs> yeah. spot on. To die for. I closed my eyes. And yeah. yeah. Walter, Walter, you gotta believe. Yeah, yeah, he was he was mixing it up. Yeah. Okay, which Marlowe was your favorite? Well, I kind of showed my hand early. I mean, so Robert Mitchum is my certainly ideal of of a uh, of what a Marlowe should be. You know, he's got the tough guy. He can deliver the lines. You know, kind of imposing in the size. Um, uh, Elliot Gold, in spite of doing well enough with the material, would be my last pick possible. Wow. Yeah. Robert. I'd rather Vern Troyer be uh, Philip Marlowe than. <laughs> Did you say Vern Troyer? <laughs> yes. No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the villain in that movie would be played by Michael Madsen, too. <laughs> I hear he's available. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. All you need is a couple days of shooting, and he's uh, he's all over it. Yeah, yeah. So my favorite Marlowe, this is complex. I always think of Marlowe in the first movie that I saw that had the Marlowe character, and that's Humphrey Bogart. So I think of him as Marlowe. Yeah. But my favorite movie, see, I think of The Big Sleep. I, I think it's a fun movie to watch, but it's a real mess of a film. Yeah. Historians mention it's a mess of a film. They say that, you know, people didn't even know what the ending was supposed to be. It was recut later. Scenes were added in to put more Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart scenes in the movie. Yeah. I always think when people talk about this as a great film, it's fun, but I don't think it's great. I don't think you can yeah. call it great. Yeah. But, yeah, so, but I think of Humphrey Bogart as being Marlowe, and I think of um, Murder, My Sweet, the movie with Dick Powell. Hmm. I just think that that's a great movie. It's a very, it, it may be a, an underrated Marlowe film. So your love of the movie even extends then to the character that happens to be uh, the actor representing Marlowe in that mm -hmm. time, basically. Yeah, I, he's not the person that I picture in the role, but I think he did a good job. 
I'd still rather see Bogart in that role. But the cinematography in that movie is just brilliant. I mean, maybe we should do a podcast of that soon. Mm. It's a Edward Dimitrik film, and it's probably his best film by far. Wonderful, a, wonderful film. That's a, yeah, nice uh, seal of approval, T-Blaine. Yeah, for sure. All right, Matt, yeah, yeah. Where, where did the cat run off to? Answer the question now. Why are you asking me? I didn't hide the cat. Because that's our the quote. officer before me. No, um, <laughs> obviously, the cat ran over to where all the naked ladies were because that's I think so. probably where I would run off to and hang out. And you know they got brownies, so you're going to be able to eat. Yeah, that's true. You can true. probably pee wherever you want because they're too out of their mind to know and care about anything. Yeah, that's a, do- um, a good double entendre that you're avoiding. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go there because it's already on all of our minds. So I think that's where the cat went went and hung out. And really, I mean, going from chain-smoking gold over to the the collective of ladies, I mean, that's a, that's a nice little upgrade there. I think Marty Augustine probably has the cat. Wow. You know why? Because, you know, he's, he's getting ready to milk Marlowe for all he's worth, right? Yeah. He's getting ready to... Uh, as he said to his buddy, you're a moil, you do this, right? Or your father's a moil, that's what he yeah, said. Yeah. Uh, you know, what if that doesn't work? What if that doesn't get the money? He pulls out his trump card. I got oh. your cat. Morris is right here, punk. Yeah. Now, now where's the money, you know? I you're, really give... thinking in, you're really thinking in film. You're a devious little character, Tom. Yeah, yeah. I just came up with that, too. I didn't even think about that Off until now. Yeah. But it's so I... obvious to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> That was just cut out. That was that was on the extras on the DVD. Uh, yeah, Marty exactly. pulling the cat out of a bag, literally. Yeah, he's like, oh, we should probably give this back to Marlo. Yeah, yeah maybe hey. not. It'll ruin the ending of the movie. His cat. Still <laughs> exactly. Laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Put it on his doorstep while he's in Mexico. Yeah. Okay. Put yourself in the shoes of aging drunken writer Roger Wade. What is yeah. your next great novel? I think you write uh, autobiography. Isn't that the obvious choice? I mean, you make up stories about how you went whaling and how you're fly fishing in Montana yeah. and killing bison with your bare hands. Making sweet talk- love to your wife underneath a waterfall in Cambodia or something. Yes. Alternatively abusing and then, you know, making sweet, sweet love to Eileen. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's where the that's where the, the goods are. I mean, it's going to be hard to top that one with any of your fiction. Yeah. I would think. I'm also uh, going nonfiction as well. I'm going uh, self-help book with Dr. Phil. You know, he's going <laughs> to yeah, double up he, on that one. He would have to stay sober long enough, and being around Dr. Phil would make even uh, a preacher want to drink, because that guy's but pretty I, annoying. I could take that back, though. Maybe he does the book with Dr. Verringer, who we didn't talk too much about on the podcast. but oh, And that is a shame, because Dr. Verringer... Is a crazy cat, I would say. That dude's pretty, pretty out there. Yeah, for a guy who's about five three, he sure sure slapped the crap out of Sterling Hayden, who runs about six five, probably two yeah. two thirty in this movie. You know, he was a, a pretty big guy. For whatever reason, I wrote down Doctor Verringer Muddy Mouse. Just I think his white suit and with him applying the beat down and being so tiny, it reminded me of like Muddy Mouse trying to <laughs> jump up in the air and and, and attack bad bad people. I think uh, I think Roger even called him that once in the movie. He called it oh, a number why? of different names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is dang fitting. He's just so tiny. God. Yeah. All right. So, which one of your friends would you likely shoot in the face? That's our last oh, question. Boy, that's a tough one. Um, yeah. I mean, we've all had incidents with friends that they likely deserved at least a, a little shot, a half shot in the face. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm going to go the high road and be the Elliot Gould type. Well, I guess he did shoot his friend in the face. But but aside from <laughs> that, he was kind of mellow and, and easygoing, and that's generally how I am. I, I haven't been put in a position yet where a true shot in the face has been required. Yeah. Not even a punch in the face, really. I can think of a few people we played poker with in the past that we could probably oh, shoot in the face, boy. but I wouldn't call them friends. <laughs> yeah, good call. <laughs> yeah. Not the close ones, the the acquaintances. The friends of the friends, yeah. Friends of the friends who somehow got in the house and started pulling out cards and making a full house when there probably wasn't one to begin with. Yeah, at least shoot a pinky finger off or something there. Yeah, yeah that's a good yeah. point. Let me ask you a question, Tom. Yeah, now, hit me with you're it. more familiar with Mr. Altman's output. Am I correct in saying that he directed The Gingerbread Man? And is that a neo-noir film? And I may be putting you on a spot there because the answer is no, but... You are putting me on the spot. Yeah. I, I can't remember if he directed that or not. Um, 
If I yeah. remember correctly, that's the one with Kenneth Branagh in it? Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, Robert Altman is a, an interesting cat, I would say, because yeah. he's directed a lot of movies, and usually when there's a large director, a very popular director, someone of his ilk where you can you can tell when it's somebody, right? Yeah, right. I usually follow and know what the films are. And yes, he did direct Gingerbread Men. Good call. Okay. Usually follow the films that he directed, and you yeah. sort of don't miss a beat. You see one, and you know, okay, that's an Altman film. But man, there's just so many that he's directed, even recently, that yeah. I don't attribute to him, or I don't. Right. Yeah, I, I don't really match up with him. Like 1996, he directed a movie called Kansas City. I don't even know what that's about. Yeah, other but, than maybe Kansas City. Yeah, and of course there's Dr. T and the Women, which is a film that I will not be seeing anytime are you, soon. Are you serious? I am serious. Richard wow. Gere, Dr. T and the Women. Uh, I, I, I've had nightmares about it. I know I know yeah. the cover. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I clicked on it now and I'm already getting a little scared. Uh, terrifying. Yeah, so I was kind of curious. I want to say I saw that, but I, I don't recall and... Uh, I'm not so disenfranchised with after seeing Long Goodbye that I wouldn't watch The Gingerbread Man just to see because I, I mean I don't think he's gonna make a worse noir movie so I'm willing to see that and I got kind of got a soft spot for Kenneth Branagh as well so yeah well you're a lawyer movie fan right if I remember yeah. correctly yeah. this one has Famke Janssen in it oh, or Famke yeah. Janssen Robert yeah. Downey Jr. yeah yeah Robert Duvall uh, maybe not so much there for you but. <laughs> I remember you being an anti-Deval person, but... He's kind of grown on me, especially in... He had some really good output in the 70s and 80s. I, I gotta give him credit for making some damn good movies for a while, but... Yeah, I mean, he's seen more be a generation of my dad would appreciate than, than I would, you know. So, maybe someday I'll check that out, and I'll, I'll report back on if I liked uh, my my second bite of the Altman <laughs> noir apple any better than the first one. Yeah, so your overall impression's mine. I enjoyed the movie. I watched it a second time, and I enjoyed watching it a second time. It wasn't the best Altman movie I've seen. It wasn't the yeah. best noir m movie I've seen, but definitely happy that I saw it and sort of filled in that blank yeah. of not seeing this movie when you've heard so much about it in the past. Now, but, if somebody loved noir films, would you encourage them to, to see this as... Not necessarily as a completist, because if you're a completist, you're going to see it to see it. But if you enjoy noir movies and you're looking to see best in the breed. Yeah, it, it would be one of those movies that I present a lot like Chinatown, where you say, if you're into noir films, this is how they did it in the 70s. This is, right. These are two good examples of how they changed the hard-boiled detective genre that you're used to seeing in some film noir. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would recommend it. I don't know if I'd recommend it above Chinatown. I I know we're talking about a movie that you want to avoid talking about for sure, but <laughs> <laughs> I can re I understand that it exists and it's certainly not not a, something to avoid in terms of just right. discussion. But yeah, just but we won't be case. doing a podcast on that yeah, or yeah. any of Polanski's films. Now, so do you think uh, like a common person on the street is going to find uh, a good amount of entertainment in, in the long goodbye? No. No, I don't think so. I, I yeah, I, I think they're like you said, or like we were talking about before, curry brand cat food. Yeah, that intro is just gonna bug some people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think I'm closer to the common man. I mean, I was looking for a more straightforward noir, and I was willing to put up with some uh, mixing it up and some altmanisms, and it was just a little too much for me to handle. Um, I don't blame the weird Elliot Gould casting because I thought that was pretty decent uh, dealing with what he was he was given. But uh, I think my failure, my complaint, my complaint of the movie is in the screenwriting portion. Um, I, the Altmanisms were tolerable, and I think the acting was tolerable. But you know what was on the paper, you know, just doesn't sit well with me. So that's probably where the my complaint lies. Yeah. I think if this was released on Criterion Collection and it went on sale, let me also say that I'm not going to buy it for 40 bucks. <laughs> this would be something I'd be interested in adding to my collection. I'll oh. put it out there and say that. I'll go that yeah. far. Yeah, so you're ready for a third viewing. Yeah, I, I could do yeah. a third viewing, especially if it was cleaned up, if um, they found a way to contrast the the copy a little bit better and, right. and make it look a little bit more presentable. I understand why they flashed the film 
but in some of these instances, when it pulls away from the contrast, I'm a guy who likes contrast. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I would recommend it. All right. Yeah, I think we uh, unfortunately kind of ended up where we both probably would have expected, but uh, you know, I not too many surprises. It, yeah, I gave it a college, a genuine, fresh look, and uh, right, you know, it was worth a shot. And for our next podcast, Matt. Do you remember what we're going to be doing for our next podcast? Honestly, about 10 minutes ago, I'm like, oh, I can't remember. I want. I hope Tom doesn't ask me what our next movie is because oh, we decided. Wow. I remember the list, and I don't remember which one we decided on. That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. Let me give you a one-word clue. I remember it was one that we added just out of the blue. Uh, Cohen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Tom has the opportunity to get a uh, screener copy of the Blu-ray of Blood Simple. That's correct. So that's kind of, I think some people would, well, it's not really a neo-noir movie, but it certainly is a bit of a hard-boiled, backstabbing story of uh, of love and and bad things happening. So, yeah, I, I've only seen it once, but I Me too. remember it fondly. Yeah, I saw it maybe four or five years ago. And again, I remember it fondly. It was, I had seen many Coen Brothers movies leading up to that. And right. like a completist, I wanted to add that to my, my viewing uh, pleasure, I guess you could say. And yeah. uh, it was interesting because it was their first film. Mm-hmm. And I remember certain elements of it being Coen-ish, you know, yeah. <laughs> it still had some of their style, but we'll get into that when we do the podcast. I think I'm very interested to see it a second time. This is not a movie that we're rushing into and, and watching for a first time, so we're yeah. going to be able to watch it with a, a second pair of eyes, so to speak, and it'll be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and this is certainly a, you know, a director, director's team uh, that I have had the most experience with you know, compared to all the rest of our movies. So yeah. you know, I've, if our typical podcast is running an hour, 40 minutes plus, uh, this one may be a long one, but I think there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about between... Uh, What's it, Blood Simple? And I think even the creation of Blood Simple, if I remember, there's some good stories about how they, mm-hmm. you know, went about producing it and, you know, their thoughts leading up to it. You know, just like any creative force, your first uh, entry really tells you a lot about uh, who you are and your thoughts and, you know, all that creative juices and everything. So, yeah. a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Yeah, and we will talk about it then. Hopefully, yeah. we'll be taping sooner than when we tape this podcast with relation to the fourth podcast. But. <laughs> But we hope to put a lot of uh, a lot of good work into each one, so sometimes that takes a little bit of time. Like a fine wine. Yes. All right. Bye-bye, Matt. Have a good evening, Tom. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Jackass!